With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. People need to understand that like how people make money, especially at higher levels, is often very non-obvious. No, but that's a great point. What you describe here, I think, is the best yeah. possible investment strategy and will make you rich. Okay, exactly. So I, I get this question as I'm going on book tour now. How do I do better than average? And I just want to take a second on this because in America, being average sucks. You never want to have average grades, especially not if you're Indian like me. You never want to have an average relationship. But in investing, average is awesome. In fact, if you get an average return of roughly 8% a year in the stock market, as history has shown us, that's really good. You can make a million dollars. It's just math. You can go to bank rate, their calculator, plug it in right now. If you just get 8%, all you have to do is be disciplined about not taking your money out when things go down, and you only have to really focus on one thing. Put as much as you possibly can into it every month. If you do that, you will be rich. So tell me, you know, let's, let's do this exercise. We talked about this before the podcast. Tell me where you think we disagree. Oh, uh, okay. Cause I agree with a lot of the stuff in, in your book, whether or not some things apply to me, there's so many interesting sections, like your list of cheap spending versus conscious spending. Um, you know, use psychology against yourself to save like all, all the psychological stuff. I really agree with this, your asset allocation stuff. I don't, but I agree that it's good for. I don't want to sound like I'm one of the advanced people who think they're advanced, but your asset allocation doesn't work for me specifically, well, but if it'll you, work if for you have, everybody. Okay, for everyone listening who's about to be like, oh yeah, James James is like so different. James is different. James just told us he flies on a private jet. So I think your allocation could be different. However, even for like, if you are making a good wage working at a company, then you're, and I'm talking about a good one. Let's say you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. There's a phrase we use at my business, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, called too smart for your own good. 
And you have people who work- I agree with that phrase, whatever you're about to say next. Yeah, people who work at Google making $450,000 a year, they're like, I'm too advanced for this. I'm like, your asset allocation is fucking horrible. And if you did what I told you in there, you'd make way more money than any of your cockamamie alternative investments for the next 30 years. Now, again, if you want to disagree at $450,000, be my guest. But I would recommend you have a plan for that too. So I account for that in the book. Put- 90% of your investments in a stable, diversified investment. Don't be too smart for your own good. You're not smarter than the market. And if you want to take 10% and put it in some fun angel investments, et cetera, be my guest. I did that because I, got, I maxed out all my accounts and I saved a lot of money. And then I said, okay, I'm going to take 10% and angel invest. And then all my investments are like, they're, they're okay. But I'm, you know what I said to myself? I should have just taken all that money and put it right back in the market. So if you don't be, be careful of being too smart for your own good, you wouldn't believe how many of my tech CEO friends who run big businesses don't invest. You know what they say? I could make more money putting it back into my own business. I said, dude, how many businesses do you know that are around for 70 years? Very few. So keep doing your business, keep growing it, but take a little bit out and put it in the market and you will never worry about money again. So too smart for your own good is a real thing. Yeah, and, and, I, and I do think the reason, as I mentioned earlier, the reason I would go broke is I would make these huge investment decisions yeah. on businesses that I thought were good. So I was too smart for my for own good. good. So I specifically put rules in place to make sure I was the stupidest person yeah. in the room when I put a dollar to work. Okay, so even a single dollar. I won't make a dollar bet if I'm not the dumbest person in the room. I like it. Meaning I'm investing on the side of the smartest person in the room. Like, <laughs> so I'm not investing against the smart, like, just your Wells Fargo example. Yeah. If Warren Buffett is investing in Wells Fargo, that means they're figuring out some way to make more profits yeah. than every other bank. Who are they making profits from? Us, you and me. I hate Wells so, Fargo. So, so don't bet against, the, if you're a customer at Wells Fargo, you're betting against Warren Buffett in some weird way. That's true. I, I will say this when it comes, that's an interesting theory. I think that um, people need to understand that like how people make money, especially at higher levels, is often very non-obvious. So people are like, oh, Warren Buffett, like just invest for the long term. No, Warren Buffett has the float from his insurance and reinsurance empire that allows him essentially free cash flow to buy entire businesses at advantage levels. So he has a lot of moats that the average person has no understanding of. They're like, oh, he's a great stock picker. I'm like, he hasn't picked stocks like that in like 40 years. So- yeah, maybe I'm, that, I'm not maybe, disagreeing with you. No, I'm but just maybe saying. that's a great point, though. That's like, if you can't find a moat, and I'm yeah. not saying you Which should find anyone it. listening to this cannot, right? And like, you you shouldn't. Like, if that's not your business or where you put in your ten thousand hours, yeah. Then what you describe here, I think, is the best, yeah, possible investment strategy, and will make you rich. Okay, exactly. So I, I get this question as I'm going on book tour now. How do I how do I do better than average? And I just want to take a second on this because in America, being average sucks. You never want to have average grades, especially not if you're Indian like me. You never want to have an average relationship. But in investing, average is awesome. In fact, if you get an average return of roughly 8% a year in the stock market, as history has shown us, that's really good. You can make a million dollars. It's just math. You can go to bank rate, their calculator, plug it in right now. If you just get 8%, all you have to do is be disciplined about not taking your money out when things go down. And you only have to really focus on one thing. Put as much as you possibly can into it every month. If you do that, you will be rich. So there's this concept 
that in a lot of places is true. You don't want to be average at your job, but in investing, average is perfect. Pick an average allocation, as I talk about, target date funds, focus on funneling as much as you can, and just get on with life. Stop fiddling around with the knobs, live outside the spreadsheet, and go focus on the other parts of your rich life. Yeah, I think, uh, I think, I think that's largely true. For me, I would never be able to sleep at night if all my money was in the markets or even bonds or other things. I'm really terrified of moving money around. You want control. Yeah. Okay. Um, Everybody listening who wants control, I have this specific section in the book about people who want control. Almost always when you get more control, you fuck it up. I agree. So what I do is, that's where I put, I measured where was I succeeding? Yeah. Where was I failing? This is not yesterday or this wasn't like in my mind i came up with these rules like this is over 20 years of losing money yeah and finally saying oh okay this investment worked and this investment worked and these 20 didn't yeah what happened here and what didn't happen here and then i quad quintupled tentupled down on the things that worked and ever since it's it's been unbelievable to change if you just measure things yeah you can I find totally great agree. success i totally agree you have to write it down and you have to be a as objective as you possibly can or get someone else to help you. And, and don't break the rule. I will never yeah. invest directly in a company by myself. There you go. I love that. Never. Notice never or always. I will always save X percent. You and, will and never invest directly. Here's another one. Even if a company, and I've lost money because of this, but not really lost. I've lost opportunity because of this, but I still made money. But I will never make an angel investing. I will never make what's called a follow-on investment. Mm. So let's say a company's doing great. I invested when they were worth $4 million. Now they're worth $20 million. There's another opportunity to invest. And they're doing great. And I can see they're doing great. I will never put more money in. Because either they're going to do great and my initial money I put in is going to be amazing. Yep. Or they're going to fail and I will have lost more money. Very- so, so there's no way I can lose by not putting more money in. There you go. Um, okay, you and I disagree on two things. Probably more. But Probably more, but you. so far. So the first is 401ks. And the second is crypto. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about it. So 401ks- By the way, I want to ask, and I'm going to ask this for crypto too, because we've never had the conversation. So you have information about what I believe from some other source. How do you know what I believe in 401ks? Uh, Dude, I've read- Okay, good question. I'm glad you asked that because a lot of misrepresentation. um, What I've read, you, uh, I think it was a Business Insider article and maybe something on Quora. And let me make sure I establish what I think I- know about your view, that 401ks are a scam, that you shouldn't put your money in 401ks. I actually am curious about why you think that, so I want to understand that. And I disagree, but let me first understand your position. So is that true? Uh, yeah, largely. <laughs> Let's okay, say wait, not- so I was right about everything I heard. Yes, I think you'll be more wrong on the crypto, but but <laughs> I was worried that your only source was the Business Insider debate that I had with, uh, I guess, Sam, I forget the name of the guy, Sam Rowe. And they they debated me and they edited out like all my defenses to his <laughs> arguments. And I'm like, why did you edit that out? And, like, and they're like, come on in again, we'll do another band. I'm like, nah, nah this time I'll stay at home. <laughs> so, Wait, so what is your belief on 401ks? I do think I'm very much in favor of cash now, cash in the bank right now. I don't like to put something, I don't like to give and this overlaps a little with with some of your philosophies. I don't like to give to some other entity mm-hmm. cash that I've worked hard for where maybe I'm going to live 
to to see it come back to me, you know, thirty years later, yeah, uh, and you know, hopefully with some some gains or whatever. I like to I like to know where my cash is right now, and that might be particular to me, but I do think Wall Street has all sorts of ways of scamming you with fees. Even if the four hundred one k is like no fee, uh, you know, I just I I don't I don't trust the fact that I have to give my money away to some. There's some reason they want my money for like thirty years, and you have to think about that too. Why do they need it for so long? Why can't I get it back? Now, yes, you can pull it back and it's taxed or whatever, but I'd rather just have it now. Okay, I I completely understand what you're saying. There's probably more reasons. This is like three or four years ago I wrote this article, so maybe I'll look it up. But if we if this gets intense, yeah. Okay, all right. First of all, let's get the gloves out. Um, so this is I want to say that. I understand how it can make you and other people uncomfortable to have your money, quote, locked away. Like okay. an annuity. Kind it's of like, not an annuity. I, it's not an annuity, but it's for me in my mind, it's like an annuity. They take all your money yeah. and they kind of, they, they decide what to do with it and okay. they kind of let you have it when, when it's okay with them to let you have it. So let's talk about why and let's talk about the costs of what you believe. Now, let's also say you're not James Altucher and you're an ordinary person sure. who has a nice, nine to five job, they're being paid well, and they have a 401k option at their job. Okay. I'm not talking about people who have made tens of millions of dollars. I still think you should invest in a 401k if you have the opportunity, but you have a slightly different risk calculus. Okay. So first of all, why do they have your money locked up? Because the average person would take it out right away. The average person cannot resist a lump sum of cash and they take it out and blow it. Similarly, there are all these rules, especially uh, there, there were until very recently about uh, you have to be an accredited investor, accredited. Why? Because scammy companies would go after mom and pop, create these insane marketing pitches and say, give me your life savings to put in this speculative penny stock. So there are some real reasons why there are some financial rules in place for ordinary investors. Now, the people listening to this, you're pretty savvy, but imagine your parents they have access to, what do they have in their 401k? 40, 50, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they get scared because what they read in the Sacramento Bee at my hometown paper, and they go, ah! and then they pull it all out. Now, what happens? First of all, they're gonna take that money and it's, they're gonna now have lost all the potential gains they could have gotten. Number two, most people are not savvy when it comes to money. So what are they gonna do with it? They're likely gonna spend it. That's what Americans do. The minute they make money, they spend it. So what the government said was, we're going to put some rules in place. You can still have your money if you want it, but you will pay a penalty. And so what this has done is it's dramatically stopped or stemmed people withdrawing their money from their 401k. So that's the first point, which is it makes you uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable. It's by design. Again, for ordinary investors, this is not your checking account where you're going to go, you know, go buy whatever you're going to buy on the weekend. This is a retirement account. Um, And then the second point is, um, there's fees and scams. Man, you and I agree on this. Like Wall Street will screw you one way or another. And in fact, 401ks do have slightly higher fees than I like. But with 401ks, the tax benefits are large. They're also available to a lot of people. And third, even though the expense ratio on some of these funds is pretty high, the tax benefit's still very positive. And as a bonus, if you get a 401k match from your, like we match our employees and we match very generously. That's literally free money. The mat, the match is true. If you get, if you get a huge match, that's free money. A lot of companies don't do the match and fewer and fewer companies are doing the match. So that was really my point is that whatever marketing and beliefs you grew up on are different now. Like the world of 401k is different. If you get the match, take free money. Uh, 
But again, the fees really bother me. Like I am subject, I, I do my invest. And I think the average investor can do this as well. Or the average em employee can do this as well. Just remove wall street as much as possible from the picture. I've been, I've worked in the wall street industry, running a hedge fund. I've seen what they do. It's wall street is like almost a hundred percent a scam. Yeah. And yeah. there's nothing I trust there. I yeah. trust banks. Not at all. Uh, financial advisors, not at all. Mutual funds, not at all. So I just don't want to have my money locked up with them for decades. Well, you, you and I agree on that. Like when I talk about the fees, let me just give you an example. This is amazing. So I had uh, I had a reader of mine on a similar call as the housekeeping example, and he said, "Can you explain? Um, can you explain fees?" So we talked about compound interest, and I said to this guy who was young, he was twenty five. I said, all right, let me show you. How much do you have? And he said, I have $2,510 already invested. He's in his 20s. And wow, that's pretty good. It's good. And then he said, I have 125, he was speaking in pounds, but let's just make it dollars. $125 a month that I put it aside. I said, great, let's let's go through it. So we pulled it, we Googled compound interest calculator bank rate, which has a great calculator. And we plugged it in. 125 bucks a month, 8% returns, and over, you know, by the time he's 65, 40 years from now, the number added up and he had $439,000. So I turned to the group and I said, what do you guys think of that number? Is it good? Is it bad? And they were all kind of like unimpressed. They're like, eh, which makes sense. You know, $439,000 by the time you're 65, like big deal. I said, okay, let's look at the chart. So you can go from just this number to actually looking at the math. And in the first year, he made like 3,000 bucks. It's all the money he's putting in. Then 3,000, 3,000. In the last two years, he made something like $50,000 per year. In other words, he was making as much as his salary. So I said, guys, let's just change it. Instead of saving for 40 years, let's save it to 42. Now he's making $70,000 a year. So people started to intuitively understand you make your money on the back end. You make it later. So I said, guys, what's your takeaway? They're like, oh shit, we need to start saving today. Now I said, let me show you two other things. Number one, to this guy, I said, can you save an extra 50 bucks a month? He's like, yeah, no problem. The number went up to like $700,000. From 400? Yeah. Okay. So now people are like, oh shit. And at the last few years, it's just like massive, right? Okay, now one guy said, hey, I have a financial advisor. And, and I said, how much is your financial advisor charge? He said like 1%, it's not that much. And I laughed. But you know, part of this uh, grim reality of understanding money and psychology is you realize- how many ordinary Americans are basically just preyed on by sharks? And if you have a financial advisor you're paying 1% to, you are potentially losing 28% of your returns. Well, think about it. The 1% is, first off, your 8% number that the market returns, that might be historical, but it still could be aggressive. We don't know. Could be. Like, I like to use a risk-free number of 4%, okay. which is maybe too conservative. But if, but if you're paying 1% in fees, that's 25% of all the money you were saving. Bingo. So we, we take that number now, 700K, and it drops to like 500K. And people, their eyes went like this. This guy, you know, I told people you're going to cry on this call <laughs> because they're going to realize a lot of things about money. And when someone realized that this guy, who's a very nice financial advisor, they're all nice, he's paying almost $200,000 to this person. For what? For putting his money in funds that are actually worse than he could get at Vanguard, his eyes just, you know, is crazy. And so what I, what I want to emphasize to people is when you say Wall Street are sharks and they're borderline scams, that is true. And also, it's not obvious how they're going to screw you. They will get you. 
But it's very counterintuitive. 1% sounds like, oh yeah, I'd pay 1%, no problem. Uh, pay somebody to mow my lawn, pay but, somebody- to, Right, but, and there's that 1%, but then there's other percentages exactly. layers deeper. The, the, the funds that he puts you in, he's getting a sales commission on those. And then maybe he's putting you in some annuities where he's getting a back-end fee on those. And those funds might have extra fees, like marketing fees, That's it. so-called 10B marketing yeah, fees. it's all bullshit. So another like two or 3% in those funds. You have to, sometimes- you have to make 15% a year to make your 8% a year. Which is impossible. So um, so another thing that happened to me, I had a successful entrepreneur I know. He was about tw- late 20s at the point. And I write this in the book, but I'm going to tell you the whole story. This guy calls me up. He goes, hey, man, I have a lot of money that I've put aside through these financial advisors. Would you be willing to take a look at him? I was like, yeah, send it over. Because I love this stuff, right? And he sends it over. And I called him back after looking through the documents. I said, okay, man do you want me to tell you that you're doing a good job and pat you on the back or do you want me to tell you the truth? And I just want to establish that because a lot of times people really don't want to change. They just want to be told that the advisor they're working with who worked with their mom and dad is like a nice person. And he said, dude, just tell me the truth. I said, all right. I said, with your income and your amount that you're saving and investing, these advisors will cost you over a million dollars over your lifetime. They're putting you in horrible funds They've got you life insurance. Why the fuck does a guy in his late 20s who's not married and has no dependents need this kind of insurance? It's ridiculous with your amount of cash and all these crazy things they've done. So as I'm doing this on the phone, I can just hear the guys like pin drop silence. He's like, what do you think I should do? I was like, this is what you do. Email your advisors. Do not get on the phone. Tell them you've decided to move. Move over to Vanguard. They'll switch you. They'll do all your handle, all your transition stuff. And by the way, I don't have any relationship with Vanguard. I just say it because they're the best. They're who I use. And he goes, okay. So usually what happens at this point is most people lose the conviction because it's hard. You're moving away from a relationship. And the reason I told him not to get on the phone with the advisors proved to be true. He sends me this email chain like a week or two later. Oh my God, it was the most magical email chain in the world. I included some of the actual emails in the book. They, first of all, they're like, oh my God, can we please get on the phone? I'd really like to discuss this with you. And he goes, I'd prefer to stick to email. And then they use- Was he allowed to? Sometimes they don't allow you to stick to email. I, he was. Okay. So he was basically telling him, I want to transition all my money out and I want the documents to be able to sign. Uh, they used every potential excuse in the book. They said, first of all, they were surprised. I'm really surprised. Where's this coming from? Then they were angry. I'm really, this is really uh, disconcerting and it makes us angry because you made us do all this work in the last quarter only to know that you were going to switch. They used guilt. They used it all. He ultimately concluded with this beautiful phrase. He said, thank you very much. I understand your position. He said, after reviewing my accounts and investments that you selected for me, I'm not confident that the decisions you made were in my best interest. Therefore, I plan to move. Beautiful. Couldn't have done it better. And this guy will now save over a million dollars in worthless fucking fees because he moved over to a better investment. How many lattes is that worth? How many appetizers? This guy picked the biggest win in life, which is exactly what I'm telling all your listeners. Stop worrying about $3 questions. Ask $30,000 questions. Or in this guy's case, $3 million questions. Right, that's why. But here's with 401ks, a lot of that is managed by your corporation that you work for and you don't have as much control. Yeah. Sure, do Vanguard. Uh, if you can, you, you often can't with a, a 401k from... Fair enough, but okay, I agree. Listen, a lot of 401ks by companies are larded up with a little bit more fun fees than I would like. But, you, but let's also remember this. When you're, if, uh, first of all, 
it's not that American consumers are rationally examining these fees. The whole point of these couple of examples I just gave you is that most people don't even understand fees. So I'm not saying pay them. I'm saying that when you tell people not to invest in a 401k because of fees, they don't even think about fees at all. What I want them to do first is start putting their money somewhere. You get tax advantages in a 401k. You often, though not always, get a match. And where else are they going to put their money? We could talk about a Roth IRA, which is amazing. But you have to remember that most Americans are going to take the easy route for investing. And a 401k actually will grow them predictable wealth. Yeah. Uh, if So, okay. You figure out what money, and it's a small percentage of the money you're making. Yeah. And you, and 10%, you could, let's say. 10% to me would be a lot to put okay, in a 401k because it's like, it's like, okay, buy money, buy 10% of my money. I'll see you in 30 years. Wait, but what are you, you, okay, hold on. Let's just, let's break this down because this is James versus ordinary people. James, what are you going to do? Oh, with, I'm saying for ordinary people too. Okay, th that's why I want to break this down. The 5% money, let's just say that's $5,000 a year. What would you do with that $5,000 a year? All Everybody right. listen. All right, so there's lots of ways. You talk about, doing freelance stuff too to diversify your income because you can't you don't just diversify your investments you have to diversify your sources of income to maximize your chances so you start rich. a business or no no or maybe i would take an online course okay like, like a, a zero to launch from my business <laughs> exactly or or take a photography course okay and then you know just just learn more education education is everything so if you take that exact same amount of money and you purely apply it to education that's either going to um, enhance your life or enrich your life because you could start, you know, more and more lucrative side hustles, or you can invest in some ways that will enhance your career. I think the gains from that are larger than the 4% maybe conservatively on a 401k, you know, minus all the fees. Okay. I love that. I agree with everything you that, just that's said. That's just one way. That's just one. There's many. I agree. Now, let me ask you this. What would the ordinary American do with that $5,000? Okay, that's a good point. So I don't know. I'm giving I know advice, uh, or or I'm giving suggestions. What I would do. That's where me, if I was making you know at a job at Procter and Gamble or whatever, uh, the ordinary American, yeah, would probably go into debt. The average American, we already know the statistic. The average American is in debt. They would spend it. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, as a safeguard against their own psychology, put it in a 401k. You can still find money to take a photography class, a freelancing class like we teach on our site, and an online business class and comedy. You can do it all. But the average American statistically would spend $5,001. Okay, they would spend more. Their savings rate is abysmal. So what I'm saying is do your 401k, automate it. They're never even going to see the money. It's actually going to grow at a pretty nice clip. Are the fees a little higher than I would like? Yes, they are. But it's going to grow. And guess what? After four, five, six years, they're going to sit back and look at that and say, oh my God, I have $100,000 or $25,000. What would you recommend if their company did not match and they can still automate it going straight into a, a Vanguard uh, index fund? I would, I would skip, I have this in there, the ladder of investing. I would skip the 401k. I would go to a Roth IRA. I would pay off the debt if they've got any. I would go back to a 401k because there's tax advantages that are huge. And then if they still have money left over, you can go to an HSA. That's a crazy one to invest in. You get a triple whammy on that. And finally, an investable taxable account. So there's right. lots of other places to go. Here's the difference. I live in a world of what is. And I first want to just establish that most people are mostly the same. Therefore, we know statistically most people will spend their money. I want them to give them a safety cushion. 
And they might not like it. People don't like this concept of like, oh, you're saying I'm going to spend my money. You're saying I'm bad. Well, next year I'm going to eat perfectly right. I'm going to save money. I'm going to work out. I'm going to call my mom and dad. Yeah, maybe you are. I would love that. But for now, I want you to automate your money. And a year from now, you're going to look at it and say, holy shit, I have $7,000 in there and I did nothing. Let me let it ride. All right. For the purpose of like solving decision fatigue, which yeah. is the problem that I brought up, uh, this is a good choice. If you're gonna, if you're gonna really say to yourself, okay, I'm not gonna. I I understand that the average American spends all their money, so I'm just gonna avoid myself the oppor- I'm gonna I'm gonna prevent myself from having the opportunity to spend all my money. Take it all, put it in something that my employer is gonna double. That doesn't seem like such a bad choice, particularly if it's money you can afford to lose. Cool. So okay, like, you're not gonna okay. You're not gonna yeah. lose. You're not gonna lose. You're probably gonna historically you go up, but I can't. You can't ever trust okay history too much. Okay. Uh, and and like if I don't know, there's also I could just my brain thinks of first what everything that can go wrong. My brain thinks of how much growth I can get. All right. So that's a Is fundamental it, difference. It's right. interesting. Yeah. But but also your brain also thinks about um how much you can make because you invest in these highly speculative investments even within the bounds of your own rules you're looking at these angel investments and high risk investments. Yes, you could lose it all, but how many times have they gone like crazy? Well, over like hundreds of investments, I'm able to, the goal of, of any investing and the goal of any entrepreneurship is people always think that they're risky, but I would say it's perceived risk. And mm. the goal of a good entrepreneur or investor is, or any investor, if you put any money to work in anything, the goal is to eliminate as much risk as possible. Totally agree. So like when you make your chart about buying a house versus renting, what you're really doing is helping people not make a decision, but how they can best eliminate risk. Yeah. Not take risks, but eliminate risk. And even your discussion of 401ks, it's not about, yes, there's a, a, a growth component, but what you're really doing is helping people avoid the risk that they're going to spend it all. Totally. Yes, totally agree. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. 
Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Another example that's very common for people, so this is one of the most common phrases in America, investing feels like gambling. So yeah. they keep this money in cash, they keep it in a savings account, and the their risk that they're worried about is that I'm going to pick some random stock and lose it all. 
The real risk that's invisible to them is that every day, it's like they're floating on a boat and there's tiny little holes at the bottom of that boat and they are sinking every day. They're actually losing money every single day by not investing. And for anyone listening, if your money's sitting in a savings account, like good job on saving, but that's not enough. You're actually losing because of inflation. So what you need to be doing to actually grow your money is investing it. So people miss, they chronically misjudge risk. And so they wake up one day, they're 45, they're like, oh, I don't have any money. Oh my God, society sucks, politics, New York City, blah, right. blah. It's like, dude, you misjudged risk in a huge way and time is now working against you. Right, so so to, to you know, answer your statement about I take these speculative risks, I did that for decades, went broke several times, learned what the difference between you know, speculative risk and con controlled risk is. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I've, my own method, my own methodology is I eliminate as much risk as possible. So I end up getting a good track record much higher than 8% yeah. a year. Because it, for me, those investments aren't risky. Putting money with a bank advisor who then puts it with a bank, who then puts it with six funds and they're all taking marketing fees and they may or may not go up because the market might have a financial crisis or the bank might go out of business or even money market funds, which are supposed to be risk-free, you know, in the financial crisis, the dollar broke is the way it was referred to in money market funds. Money market funds traded for less than a dollar. Yeah. So, uh, which is supposed to be impossible, but it happened. So even money market funds are too risky for me. And <laughs> I would rather do angel investments than a money market fund. Now, I don't put all my money in angel investments. Most of my money is in cash. Yeah. But- that to me is less risky than even a savings account. Man, this is crazy. Or this, or or the average stock market mutual fund or four hundred one k. I mean, definitely interesting. So we both think about risk a lot, but we have ultimately come to very different conclusions, which I have to say I respect. Right? Everyone's got different. We can we can as I wrote in the book. There's different paths to getting rich which I did not respect the last time I wrote it. Now I do. People want to fire. They want to have 70% savings rates, whatever. There's also different destinations of a rich life. This person wants to drive an RV. This person wants to move to a different country. Fine. You and I, we've taken different journeys and you look at risk in a totally different way than I do. Like for me, like I, I had a podcast with Noah Kagan and he asked me, he's like, where's your money? And I told him, it's like, this is how I broke it down. And the majority of it is in index funds. He's like, wait, like what percentage of your portfolio? And I told him, I ballparked it for him, you know, but it's a lot. Like the majority of my net worth is in index funds. And he was like blown away. But then he told me how much his, he said that he only has something like 25% in index funds. And I was like, what? So both of us were like staring at each other, like we're both Martians. But really it means that we have come to different conclusions and also gone a different route to get there. Yeah, and I think also there's something to be said for uh, investing in career. Like a lot of a lot of your assumption, and this made more sense in 2004. And by the way, you adjust in in your revised book. But in 2004, people still had the myth of a stable career. You're going to have a job for 40 years. Your income's going to go up X. Most of your savings is going to come from your income, either before or after taxes, depending on what vehicle you use. I think a lot of, I think not a lot of Americans, but I think Americans, the trend is, and, I, and I've asked the people at LinkedIn this, how many of um, the searches are for jobs versus let's say side hustles. And that number 
is small, but it's like doubling every year. Mm. So, so kind of that that sort of gig economy. I don't like that phrase. It feels like a, a bullshit self help phrase. But the size of that gig economy is kind of doubling every year, and eventually that gets a lot bigger. So, so investing in career and investing in how to mitigate risk. So, yeah. so that means building your connections and your networking opportunities and so on. And I'm the worst networker in the world. You know how hard it is for me to even see people. Wait, hold on. Just, just so people know if James is kidding around. I think I emailed you about coming on this podcast or on Facebook message or whatever. How many months ago? And then, probably like six months ago. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then James writes me back like like three weeks ago. He's like, hey, sorry, I've been off Facebook. Anyway, want to come in? I was like, what? Like, did I even have a beard and, when I wrote that message? And you're one of my... You know, you're you're one of the people I is always a contact, like is always someone I can rely on and and know that you're in the the circle, the inner circle. But that's I'm really bad at like follow up. It's it, whatever. It's <laughs> I'm hilarious. the worst networker in the world. Okay, I I I love what you said, and I actually I think that um it's become I totally agree. It's more of a trend. I see it with my readers as well. Like they a lot of most of them have a job and a good job, but they're also like, what else? I want to create something on the side. I want a second source of income. I want to diversify. Um, a lot of them are like, you know what? I want a second stream of income for multiple streams of income because I want the option of eventually leaving, right? And I think people are more sensitive and smarter and savvier about that now, which is, you know, maybe they've gone through a layoff. They've certainly seen someone in their network who's been laid off, not because they were bad at their job, but because the economy changed. And I think um, we teach a lot of this in our courses, right? How to do, uh, how, we have earn 1K on the side. So we start off by showing people, interestingly, when we tested this program, we found that we could easily help people earn $10,000 a month on the side. It turned out people didn't believe it. They actually were like, no way. And this course came out many, many years ago before it was more popular to talk about earning more. So we actually intentionally understated it. We changed the name to earn 1K on the side because for a lot of people, especially back then, they were like, 1K, that's doable, but it's also meaningful. An extra $1,000 a month for people makes a huge difference. You can pay off debt faster. You can save more. You can just spend it on something you love. And so it flips that mindset as you've been talking about for years. It's like, be a producer. You can do so many creative ideas. You come up with 20 ideas a day, throw them away, come up with 20 the next day. And when people really internalize what you've been teaching and what we've been teaching as well, is that you can actually expand the pie and you can take your ideas that you already love and um, you can like, turn it into something massive. And and a lot of it is related to where do you feel stress? Now, stress could be something that can be managed also. Like, yeah. you know, I could just say that's an excuse. Oh no, I feel stressed if I do this. Well, that's an excuse. Don't look, figure out ways to deal with your stress as opposed to putting your money somewhere else, you know. But stress is is correlated with IQ or and it causes IQ up or down. The more stress you have is the lower your scores on IQ tests will be. So you're going to have better idea if for me with cat, if I was just working at, you know, I, again, I've started from scratch many times. So if I was just working at like a, a job and I had less stress because I, oh, I'm safe with cash in the bank, I'll have better ideas at work. I'll get those raises faster, those promotions faster. So I don't know. That's but, valid. I mean, I think that's a really good point, which is, look, you, you should understand the rules about investing, but there, there are some people, for example, who are in debt and mathematically they have such a low interest rate on their debt that they should just pay the minimum and invest the rest. But some people, I find this is very common, they just hate it. 
They hate having debt. And so they're like, I'm taking every penny and paying it off. Now, mathematically, it makes no sense. But guess what? Money isn't just about math. It's also emotional, as I've said. And so sometimes you're just like, you know what? This might not be technically correct, but it makes me feel safe. It makes me sleep at night. And that's perfectly fine. I, I, I agree. And let me ask you this. Uh, uh, this, we may disagree or we may agree. I don't know. Somebody once wrote to me, they were having financial troubles. They had a family, um, but they lost their job. They had X in credit card debt a month. They had X in housing debt a month, X in student loan debt a month. And so my suggestion to them was, is completely default on your credit card debt. Stop paying. You, you, you don't have credit card debt if you just simply stop paying it. <laughs> Wait, and then what? What? And then what did right. they say? Uh, they never thought of it that way. I don't know if they followed my advice, yeah. but but this became controversial because every, I wrote about this yeah. and everyone say, oh no, that's unethical. You know, if you make an agreement, you got to pay it. And I'm like, yeah, you made an agreement. So here, here's the agreement. It's I, two parts. If you pay the debt, <laughs> the bank is nice to you. If you don't pay the debt, this is part of the agreement. The bank will do X, Y, and Z to you. So you have to be fine with X, Y, and Z. You're still staying within the agreement. You're not fighting X, Y, and Z. Okay. You know, which is like your credit score goes down. They'll send a, a, a debt agency against you, maybe even sue you. Yeah. Um, they can't seize your house. It's just credit card debt. So there's, there's, there, you know, I know this even on the hedge fund side, banks would try to sell hedge funds collections of debt that were older than 90 days. So the banks get rid of it. It's not even, the banks don't even care anymore. They've allocated, they've allocated for this every year that a certain number of people are going to default and you just fall in that category then. So, yeah. so if, if you're, if, so I'm not saying always defaults because then you're, you're never going to, you know, get any loaner and you're ever again, which maybe you don't need or whatever. I'm saying if you're in mild financial difficulty, not even great. If you're in mild financial difficulty, <laughs> credit card debt is the first thing you could, it could go to zero in an instant okay. if you just stop paying. <laughs> so that's an interesting, let, let's take this apart because I'm sure anyone listening has some very visceral reactions. Either totally love what James just said or what a fucking crazy uh, concept. So I think that theoretically, you are correct that these are the rules of the game. Like, right. And you just called it's it It's not out. ethical or unethical. Yeah, it's you're, just the you're, rules. You're still following the contract that you made. Exactly. So- Purely theoretically, the bank has already factored in this percentage of people will default. Therefore, the interest rate is at a certain rate and they already know that. So it's it's the same as going to McDonald's and them saying, uh, you know, would you like to supersize that? They already know what percentage of people are going to say yes. It's the same reason why cable companies treat everyone like shit. And then you're like, I'm going to switch cable companies. And they're like, go ahead. They've already factored in churn. It's already a number on a spreadsheet in their company. They already know. And they have run the numbers to say, if we improve our customer service by 20%, it actually doesn't move the needle much. Therefore, we're not going to do it. So I think it's on a spreadsheet in some dark office somewhere. Yes, theoretically, you are correct. However, I think there's a couple of other issues. One is most people, to, to understand how these rules all work, you need to be extremely financially savvy. And when I asked, did this person follow your advice? And you know, you, it's not surprising you didn't hear back. But if the person said, all right, I'm going to follow James's advice and just not do it, let's just now look at what's going to happen. They're going to start getting increasingly frantic calls from debt collectors. And, and, and by the way, the next step, if they're in further financial pain, is to stop paying all mortgage debt. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, but, but go ahead. This person needs to understand the entire rules of the game. Yes. And most almost nobody understands that. So they're going to get Although these- Although in my article where I wrote about this, I spelled it out. This is what's going to happen to you. Okay, but go ahead. Okay, 
the, the vast majority of people, in my opinion, are going to get these calls and these calls get very creative, right? They're going to be calling you at night. They're going to be doing X, Y, Z. In fact, a lot of them are borderline harassment. And this person is going to fold at one point or another. Yes. That's their job. These debt collectors' job is to get you to fold. Right. They're, they're very good at it. Yeah. So, so, so specifically what's happened is, again, the bank, they'll call you a couple times, but really what they're going to do is they're going to sell off the debt to a debt payment agency or a debt collection agency. For pennies on the dollar. Yeah, usually about nine cents on the dollar. And then even those guys might sell it to a hedge fund or another company for like three or four cents on the dollar. So all that company has to do is collect four cents on the yeah. dollar to make, or five cents on the dollar to make a prof, a 20% profit. So, so let's say they're following your advice. The vast majority of people, in my opinion, are going to fold. They're going to get these calls. He's going to use all these guilt tripping and talk about but, your mom. But think about it. This is, I'm going to start using your techniques. There's scripts you could build. Okay, they call five times, you blow them off. On the fifth time you talk to them and say, oh, uh, can you just send me all the documentation about that debt? I, I'm I'm confused. They're not gonna, most of them are not gonna have the documentation. They've The bank sold a million pieces of debt fair, to them. Fair enough. There are lots of ways you can stall the process. I agree. On a practical level, in my opinion, most people will eventually fold. But let's say they don't. Let's say they don't. So this person has found the scripts and resisted and, and they've, even though the calls are coming in the mail, fine, they're not going to pay. Now we have a couple of other issues to consider. One is, um, uh, what, what is the cost to their overall financial portfolio? So now, you know, their credit is going to be adversely affected for the next seven years. So if they go to rent, a, buy a place, that's going to cost them. If they go to rent, yes. it may cost them more. Yes. Their interest rates are all getting jacked up. That's going to cost them. Now, do they understand the rules of that game? Because if they have any debt, they're going to be paying a lot more on it. Have they considered well, if they have those? new debt. If they have new debt. Yes. The, not, not old debt. Old debt's old debt. Uh, unless, okay. it's, unless it's adjustable in some Which weird way. Which many, many are. So, okay. Let's say, okay, fine. That's the practical level of have they... Have they already considered what costs, if any, might rise and also what things they might not be able to do for the next seven plus years? And, right. then the, and, and I'm not recommending declare bankruptcy, by the way, because yeah. they don't, nothing requires you to declare bankruptcy if you default on your credit card debt or even if you default on your mortgage debt. Yeah. So okay. again, with, uh, with mortgage debt, you know, you're still following the contract. You know what's going to happen. If, if you're not fighting that. Yeah. You just, you're on the other side of the contract instead of the positive side of the contract. Right. Okay. So then on the practical level, still on number two is, um, are they going to learn from this? So typically people who have gotten into credit card debt have gotten there for a reason. Yes. And it's overspending. Now I'm not talking about healthcare costs, which are insane. I'm talking about people who are in credit card debt will openly admit to me. I say, why'd you get in debt? They're like, oh, I overspent. Yeah, and so this, here, here's how they learn. They, it's forced learning. People don't learn. So you're not going to be able to get another credit card. <laughs> you won't be able to overspend because yeah. you can't get another credit card. Is it, okay, that's one way to look at it, but isn't that like saying, oh, you know, um, some, some person, you want to teach them to not have sex before a certain age. So they did it once, you found them, and now you're going to prohibit them from having sex again for the next six years. They're going to find a way to do it anyway. And they're not really learning the lesson you're actually trying to teach them. It depends what the lesson is. So it's more, I would say it's more equivalent to if I'm in a grocery store, I'm buying a bag of Doritos. So I'm just not going to go to grocery stores. If I'm in a bar <laughs> and I'm an alcoholic, I'm going to have a drink. So I'm just going to avoid bars. So if I don't want to get in debt, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to avoid all the vehicles of debt. I'm not going to get a credit card. Uh, okay. Cause I'm a debtaholic like most people are. <laughs> so, okay. I, I, I hear that. I would say that, um, I prefer to teach, I prefer to acknowledge what most people are going to do. Most people 
are going to use a credit card. And I actually think they can do it well. You can, you can squeeze the credit cards for everything they're worth. You can get perks, rewards, cashback, free upgrades, all that stuff. I show how to do that in chapter one. I would rather teach someone how to wisely manage it and set up systems than to basically blanket prohibit them from using it at all. Okay, that's fine. And I, and I agree with systems. You know, again, I, I qualified the initial advice with if you're in financial difficulty, like don't, mm. I think it's a poor strategy. This is where I think it's a gray area ethically. <laughs> like don't get a bunch of credit cards, spend the max and then say, oh, James said to not pay it down. I'm yeah. saying like, if you just lost your job and, and you have three kids and your, your mortgage is, is a chain around your neck and, and the, the, your credit card debt is pulling you into, into drowning and you're, you can't sleep at night and you're stressed. Yeah. Simple solution. You have more, no more debt. Well, right now. <laughs> it's simple. You but go, it go from a hundred thousand dollars in debt with 10% interest to $0 in debt in a second. Come on. <laughs> it's simple, but it's not easy. There are a lot of simple things I could tell people to do. St stop eating. You're going to lose weight. That's not, that doesn't mean it's correct. So similarly on the, Although I'll say it's great. If you're and when, maybe when you're out of financial difficulty, okay, now the credit card agency's calling you and you can say, you know what? How about I pay you 20 cents on the dollar? Well, that's a whole nother thing. That's a, if you want to talk about negotiating debt, that's a whole nother thing. And that can be done. I have people negotiate medical debt using this stuff in my book um, a lot and it works. But I also think that um, on a practical level, uh, I want people to know, so I can guarantee you that this person has never made a plan for how much they owe and how long it would yes. take. Yes, I guarantee it. So almost as a prerequisite for all of this, is I would say, how much debt do you owe and how long will it take you to pay it off? And because they don't know, instead of focusing on a solution that they can reasonably achieve, most people go from zero to nuclear and they skip all the steps in between. I'm gonna give you an example. I had a woman email me and she told me, you know, there's something I always dream, of, I always talk about doing, but I never do it. I dream about running three times a week. And I said, why don't you just go for a run once a week? And she goes, why would I do that? Running once a week doesn't do anything. In other words, she would rather dream about running three times a week than actually run once a week. This person would rather dream about being debt-free, wipe your hands and be done, than to actually make a plan, which will likely take four or five years to pay off, but it's automatic. You never have to think about it. And he just wants to wipe his or her hands clean. But no understanding of the consequences of that. Yeah, I, I think, and again, we're talking about the average American plus there's some financial stress called either caused either by a layoff or medical illness yep. or all the reasons why somebody has more than the average financial stress. Um, my, my step one there is remove the financial stress. Even if there's a little bit of pain on the back end of that, which is people calling you your credit score going down. Um, you having to engage in later negotiations or being in trouble, something, not legal trouble, but you know, some sort of weird bank trouble or whatever. Yeah. But you know, they, they're, they're in financial stress for some other reason that seemed out of control. We don't know. And the, the solution is to completely stop thinking about the yeah, debt for me. I, I get it. I get it. I just, but, but I agree with you. Like, okay, I, put, of course, put together a financial plan for when you're back on your feet. No, like and, do the, do the bare minimum. Like, uh, the, the type of person that has gotten into a situation where they have $10,000 in credit card debt, a mortgage they can't afford, the layoff, okay, that may have just happened to them. But all the other things, this person made those decisions. So yes. you can wipe it clean today, but they're going to get right back into these decisions tomorrow. I would rather teach them the principles 
where, look, it might be a little stressful for you, but fix this, go through the six-week plan in my book, and you'll never have to worry about this again, as opposed to they want the simple solution. Oh, let me wipe it all away. And then two years later, they're going to be exactly in the same situation. That's why people who withdraw from their 401k, they borrow against their 401k, it almost is always a horrible decision. They borrow against it, they spend poorly, and then they're like, oh shit, I, I told myself I was going to repay it, but now I can't. Right. It's not It's not any one decision. It's a series of poor decisions, which can be corrected. Everyone listening to this, you can improve the way that you deal around money. You can actually spend extravagantly on stuff you, learn, you love, but you have to build a systematic approach versus the whack-a-mole approach most people take. I agree. I agree with you 100%. Again, this is, this is for the person who already didn't make a plan. Yeah. And then something unusual happened. Maybe they even had a plan, but something unusual happened. Now they're in undue financial stress. Yeah. Now, so for instance, my case, I was I went broke because I didn't have a good plan and I made bad financial decisions. I didn't do anything you recommend in your book. <laughs> and then suddenly I had the only kind of debt I've ever had in my life is mortgage debt. I've never had a credit card in my entire life. But take mortgage debt as an example. Once you stop paying, bad things happen. Mm. But every step of the way could be stretched out, delayed. Like the average foreclosure takes 18 months. 18 months of not paying mortgage. It's equivalent of 18 months of not paying rent, say. No, I, I get it. I get it. I think you- That could get you back on in shape But it enough. won't. But it won't. It, it would for you. No, no, it didn't for me for many years. I had to do it again and again. But eventually I learned. The average person will not. And if anyone listening, the key here is, we are all average and and you earn the right to be extraordinary. But if you try to do these tricks and gimmicks, you will lose. If Let me put it this way. If you were extraordinary, you wouldn't have gotten in that situation. Now you, James, are a massive exception to the rule. Massive. And we both know that. But but I was dead broke like anybody else. I get it. Who, who was in that situation. You, you were dead broke like anybody else, except you ended up completely different than every other dead broke person. Every other dead broke person stays dead broke, or maybe they make a few changes but, to their life. But, but to your point, there's lots of lessons to be learned. Like, yes. One lesson is, okay, what could I do to make financially better decisions in the future? The other lesson in this is that to understand the difference between ethics and what you're supposed to do and reality. I agree with that. Because ethics, that might have been just a marketing thing. The bank's like, oh, it's unethical to not pay your credit card debt. You don't understand... What what did you really agree to? And are you willing to stick with your agreement? But there's sometimes, there's the other side of the agreement. I, I agree. And we didn't even get to number three. The ethics ethics part is a whole another thing. I, I agree you should explore the option. Like if I borrowed money from you, yeah. then it would be unethical to not pay it back. Mm. You're a friend. Maybe we didn't have a written contract and you would be number one on the list to pay back. That's ethics. Yeah. The bank, Wells Fargo, I know what they're going to do to me if I don't pay back. I agreed to yeah. it and they agreed to it and we signed something. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And like I said, like you're operating within a rule contract. I'm less concerned when I speak to people, I'm less concerned about, um, I, I'll tell you what I'm most concerned about is the practical level of, are they building the skills and habits to live a rich life? So people come to me with all these gimmicks and all these questions about money ethics. Like we can talk about them and I've enjoyed the back and forth. But ultimately, what I want to know is, is this person going to be out of debt? Are they going to have savings and investing? Are they going to be able to take a trip with their family and not worry two years from now? If I do my job, the answer is yes. I agree. And and again, um, I know I keep repeating it, but this is a person in financial stress, has an agreement with the bank. 
and 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 the lesson really is is not a financial lesson. It's more understanding that society has carved, you know, carved a particular hole for you, a particular grave for you to put yourself in. <laughs> you don't have to stay in that grave. There's a ladder to take you out of that grave, and then you could see the sky and see what your your full choice of options. Maybe credit card debt is one example. Maybe whether or not you should go to college or go buy a house is another example. And you go through the house example in your book. Uh, so it's just a different way. Like teach yourself to be skeptical about when other people say you need to do yes, X. hundred percent. And I love what you said. Society has carved out a specific grave for each of us. It's right. It's right. And most of us end up very predictably in that grave. We end up, you know, 2.5 kids, uh, a mortgage we can't afford. Uh, five days of vacation that we don't even enjoy and we need a vacation back from the vacation and uh, you know we don't save enough and then suddenly we wake up at 42 and we say oh my god what am I supposed to do these are graves that are both carved out for us and that we willingly embrace because we go through listening to advice from people who don't know what they're talking about or you go on reddit to a bunch of jaded disaffected millennials who don't know what the fuck they're talking about when it comes to money I saw these people go into financial independence subreddit which is a I, I talk a lot about fire these days um, Which cool. is financial independence retire early. Yeah. Uh, and so there's different levels of fire. There's lean fire where they might retire, you know, and make like $15,000 a year off their investments. Then there's, then there's fire, then there's fat fire, which is, you know, you live in retired Manhattan making $600,000 a year off your investments. So I see people go into financial independence, which is a highly frugal culture. They're like, why would you spend on anything? And ask questions like, hey, I really love this like shirt, or I want to take this trip to this restaurant for my 20th anniversary. Do you guys think it's okay? Do you think it's worth it? And then all these people are like, what the fuck? You could, you could retire three months early after 30 years. What are you doing? And I'm like, why would you take advice from these people when it comes to something like spending money? I would take advice from them on savings rates. I would take advice from them on how to cut back, but I would never go into this room and ask them for advice on, should I go to this restaurant for my 20th anniversary? It makes sense to know who you're taking advice from. And if your mom or your uncle is telling you you need to buy a house and you look at them and you're like, I don't want to be in their life 20 years from now, then maybe you should go find advice from somebody else. So what? tell, tell me another thing you disagree with me on. Crypto. Crypto. Dude, what the hell? Why? All right, why? lay it all out. So, okay, oh my God, I don't even know where to start. So I, I started writing about crypto a little bit and out of the fire comes just like thousands of these crypto bros who they start going, <laughs> Ramit, such a Luddite. Only he's so satisfied with 8% returns. What a fucking loser. And I'm like, Are, is this a joke? Is this happening to me? So then I talk to these crypto people and I look at them and I say, hey, just a quick question. Uh, what does the rest of your portfolio look like? And then their eyes like glaze over. They, they don't have a portfolio. Right. They're so they, fucking lunatics. Right. So they are speculators and they, they're like diversification. <laughs> H-O-D-L. I'm like, what the fuck? So I go further. I start writing about crypto. And so many people on Twitter, we ha and I have to admit, we had an accidental email go out that wasn't fully reviewed and it was like very over the top. Um, like, it, I don't mind saying what I believe, as you can tell but I never like to be sensationalistic. I want to be thoughtful. I want to show you the data. And this email went out and a lot of people were like, this fucking guy. And they came after me. And I actually apologized publicly. I wrote an email to my entire list of hundreds of thousands of people. I said, look, I, I believe 
that crypto is not the best investment. And I'll tell you what I believe, but the way I wrote it was not correct. So that happened. I went to write this book and I'm sitting there at a coffee shop. And it was like one of my early things I was writing in this 10 year update. And I wrote for about six hours and I, I'd written about three pages on crypto and I look at it and it's just garbage. It, I had done this thing where I was like, on one hand this, on another hand that. And when people buy a book, they want to know what that person believes, truthfully, honestly. And I never want, again, to be sensationalistic, but you know exactly what I think about Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Vanguard, Schwab, all everything. And so I ripped it up and I started again. And here's what I'll say about crypto. I think that uh, if you want, if you've got, a beautiful portfolio and you've got your asset allocation dialed in, it's happening automatically. You've got a little extra money. You want to put five or 10% in crypto, be my guest. But it's a little misleading for people to take. And a lot of these people, as you see on Reddit's Bitcoin subreddit, look at the way they talk. These are not oh, reason. Oh, me. They all hate me too. Oh, so perfect. So they, they hate both of us. Okay, they, great. They, so they hate me. I was getting death threats. I remember there was, and I want to, finish with your story and then your critique of my opinion on it. But there was one night, it was like January, 2018. Um, it was the middle of the night and I was being, and of course the worst thing to do at three in the morning is to go on the internet and yeah. see what people are saying about you. Yeah. But like all over Twitter, it's like people I respected. It was like, this guy is an idiot. Oh He's God. a scam. He's a fraud. And so I posted my number and I said, if anyone has a problem with me, call me right now and I will talk to you about it. <laughs> and so I got calls from three to 6 a.m. and from some like random people in Australia, some Silicon Valley people who I knew about. And by the end of each conversation, uh, they would be like, oh, okay, I understand where you're coming from. And then they'd report back to their little clan or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, wait, before we go on, I just, can I make a note? I just want to do a quick time check because I didn't realize we were going to go this long, which I love it, but... Oh, yeah, I think the last time we did a part one and part two. You're right. So I have to be somewhere at one, which you're, is in... You're doomed. <laughs> I'm fucking doomed. Oh, my God. Where do you have to be? 40th Street. Um, you can take the one. No, don't worry about how I'm going to get there. Can we, can we wrap up in like 10 minutes? Yeah. Okay, okay. So just, okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, so the crypto thing. Um, just to finish off that story, they have no portfolio. Many of them have like $3,000, so they're not even operating with a huge amount of money. Right. And they take all their life savings and they put it into this thing, which first was originally, uh, this is an amazing technology, blockchain. Fine, it is. Then it became, this is an amazing investment. Then, let me try that one more time. First it was, blockchain is amazing. The technology is amazing. Then, you know, it was discovered that, oh, you actually don't need blockchain to walk your dog or, you know, change your underwear. So let's talk about it as an investment. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, 20K. Oh, this is amazing. And then that went down, dropped 80%. And suddenly people started to change the story of what crypto was. So again, if you want to put five or 10% of your money of your portfolio in it, be my guest. But to go around saying this is the best investment and you're a Luddite if you don't invest in crypto, excuse me, speculate is ridiculous. That's my take. Right. Okay. Do you I think agree? I, I think I agree because <laughs> in August 2017, it's just, it's, there's a YouTube video. I was on CNBC. It's on YouTube. And I said 95% of cryptocurrencies are a total scam. Which S is true. Right. Since that moment, 80% of 
cryptocurrencies out there have gone to zero. They were, uh, so I'm on my way to being a hundred, to being <laughs> completely correct. 80% have been proven to be scams and it's on its way. It's still on its way to that 95% of number I talked about. Um, but crypto is still here to stay. So it, I'll just do one more math thing. Forget about the technology for a second. So what I, I saw all of my readers starting to get into what I knew were scam cryptos. How do I know it's a scam? Is a, I have a software background. So I'm, I ha I'm of the same ilk as the Silicon Valley people who are like yelling on Reddit about, you know, crypto. So I could see the code, what's scam and what's not. What's Where can the founders take extra coins and just put them in their pockets and pump it up and, and steal money from everybody? I could see it. And I've been a professional money manager. So I, I, I felt finally, and I, people were asking me about crypto for years. In 2013, I built a store to sell my book, uh, Bitcoin only before I released on Amazon. But now, but I wouldn't really talk about it, you know, for the next four or five years after that. Um, but I figured, oh, all my readers are getting into some of these scam cryptos. I wanted to write something. I hired people. I started making ads because of the particular take I had, which anybody could read anywhere, but I had a very unique take that was different from the Silicon Valley take. It had nothing to do with the technology or whatever. Um, uh, the, the ads were working. And so the company doing those ads hit the accelerator as they should. And it literally, we bought the internet. <laughs> like my ads were everywhere. So then all these articles started coming out, like James Aldrich is pumping like I, these shit coins and ICOs and stuff. No, I wasn't. I would tell people, read the product and you'll see what I'm doing. No, 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 just the ads. Uh, okay, the ads are working. And I was, my subscribers who wanted to get into crypto anyway, if you look at the portfolio I've recommended, and I can't say too much about it, none of them have gone to zero. But hold so, on, isn't it a bit disingenuous to say 95% of these are scams, which, mm -hmm. okay, what percentage of average Americans do you think should invest in Bitcoin? I think, I don't know the answer to that. Like, is it, it like five or is it like 90? I, I don't know, because I think if you were already investing, don't get into the scams. That so, was my whole point. So you, so you, because I do it. think, I do think there is a huge future for what's going on in that space. But like with any financial innovation, this happened with mortgage-backed securities in 2006. This happened with the internet in 1999. This happened with junk bonds in 1986. With any financial innovation, first there's this crazy scam bubble, and then reality sets in. So there's a bust, and then you know Amazon is a hundred times bigger than it was in 1999. So the, 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 the good stuff rises to the top ultimately. Okay. I can see that you're, you're saying, look, if they were already going to buy it, I want to guide them in the process that and, I get. And I think there's a huge future. Okay. Uh, so I do believe you could, again, remove, it's what we were saying all along. You can remove the risk and then you can bet on the future. But you okay, can't but, bet on the future blindly. But those sales pages and those email funnels, we're not saying that. They were saying like, get into this thing before it goes to the moon and like there's easy money to be made. And that is a little disingenuous. Like in my opinion, we can disagree on that, but I think very few people in America should own Bitcoin unless it's part of a diversified portfolio oh, or to, any speculative by asset. By the way, I agree. It has to be part of a diversified portfolio. I would always say- I didn't see that on the headline, subheadline or anywhere. Right, but I don't think in any cor investment course or newsletter course in the ad itself- No, they wouldn't. It says- be diversified like but in the materials where people are actually making decisions yeah it does say 
you know, be diversified. <sighs> here's what you look for. You don't have to follow my advice, but here's what you should still look for. I think it's taking advantage of a mania, which if when we look back 10 years from now, I think we will look back and say, this was a mania. And it's taking advantage of people who don't understand how financial portfolios work. And what the this is exactly why they have rules about accredited investors because people read, I mean, there were taxi drivers telling me to invest in Bitcoin. I'm like, I fucking wrote a book on personal finance and you're telling me to get into Bitcoin? Uh, look, what I, the hell is happening right now? I had the same experience after I built and sold an internet company in 1999. Taxi drivers tell me to, to buy pets.com or whatever. Or, or actually, a bank was even trying to get me into the, um, like, pet x stock like then like look how pets.com did now we have the third competitor of yeah. pets.com yeah. let's get into that early on and so so yes in a mania people want to get involved my goal was to say a yes here's the reason to get involved and it's a valid reason and and this could be an, an extremely valuable financial innovation and b 95 percent are scams so you have to be really careful now with the ads i i definitely didn't say anything lying in the ads everything i approved I admit it. I approved all the ads. There'd be my face with like big coins in the eyes. Nice. And like, it was almost like anti-Semitic ad. ads. Like there'd be horns in the back or something and I'd fire all around me. And uh, oddly, the, the ugliest looking ads were the ones that worked the best. But there's an interesting video. Uh, uh, nice guys have to use Machiavellian tactics. If I simply said, hey, you know, I'm the nice guy here. All these other newsletters don't, they're all frauds nobody would have listened to me and everybody would listen to them. Instead, I actually had the most successful ad program about cryptos on out of thousands of these newsletters. And just mathematically, like, let's say, I don't know, I'm just making up a number. Let's say I picked 10 cryptos in the portfolio over this past year and a half. If it was truly a fad or a scam, the whole space, uh, or, or, uh, 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 you know, whatever, a, a, a Ponzi scheme, then because I said 95% is going to zero, I would only have a one out of 20 chance of any one pick not being zero already. So of all 10 of my picks, none of them are scams. None of them are zero. They've all survived. They've all been bouncing back. And so- Well, my, so my, is the whole market. Okay. Right, right. But, so but, time will no, tell. No, 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 but not, the zeros haven't bounced back. The well, scams okay, are gone. If you take out those- 80% 80, 80 are gone. But saying zero is a big, is, is a very low bar. Like my investment that I recommend in this paid newsletter is not going okay, to zero? Okay, Let, let's just say- 80% though are, have been already identified as scams or scam-like yeah. uh, or useless. You know, like a pets.com wasn't a scam, but it was useless. So, <laughs> so 80% of useless. I still would have only had a one out of five chance times, you know, to the 10th power of having uh, uh, all non, you know, all, all currencies that people still think are, are valid and are, and are going to grow. And I don't market time. They are going to grow. Okay. I picked all these coins because I knew the software, knew the knew the developers, knew the financial benefits of each one, uh, and I knew they weren't scams. And so, when as the market matures, just like the internet did, just like mortgage-backed mortgage -backed securities did, just like junk bonds did, as the market matures, there's enormous, enormous upside. Okay, I hear you on that. I think that time will tell, but I think that we need to compare it to its risk-adjusted returns compared to what else you could invest in. The benchmark is the S&P 500. So what I would want to do over the five or 10 years from now is to say risk adjusted, what are the returns? Now, I will say this, and I'm willing to make a bet on this. The people who invested in Bitcoin will have subpar returns for the rest of their lives, not because of their Bitcoin investment. That could go up or could go down. 
it's because the kind of person who invested in Bitcoin is going to be a terrible fucking right. investor. So this is a similar to the argument about the credit card debt, actually. Bingo. So The person who got into credit card debt is going to get into it again. The person who bought this speculative investment thinking it's going to solve all their problems is going to keep doing it for the rest of their lives. But, by the way, the person who just bought Bitcoin and nothing else, they might not have subpar. I think the person who just said, who, who, who like they saw it on a subreddit, oh, here's a great Bitcoin for gambling on horses. Like it's got a blockchain to keep track of the, your horse bets or whatever. There, oh By the way, there are uh, cryptocurrencies like that that have gotten to zero. Uh, or here's one, we're going to put it on every marijuana plant to track all the the, the blockchain of marijuana plants, where which state it came from. It's going, going to zero. Um, but again, I picked out ones that solve real problems in the cryptocurrency space because Bitcoin has some problems. It's it's good, but it, there's difficulties. And if you pick a portfolio that solves real multi-billion or multi-trillion dollar problems, you're probably going to do well. And again, the odds of having not, you know, with 80% having been scams, the odds of picking 10 in a row, if it's truly random, if the whole thing's a scam, the odds of picking 10 in a row that aren't is almost infinitesimally small. And yet we did it. And I'm hoping that the readers I have who went from being super speculative to getting, seeing this portfolio, they probably save themselves an enormous amount of money and now have upside as the industry matures. That was my total goal. The ads were aggressive, but they were totally how I believed. But yes, I had to get noticed too, or else nobody would listen to me. Instead, people would go into the scam stuff. I was doing the opposite of pumping ICOs. If you're putting money into crypto, don't go into all these scams is what I was saying. There's enormous upside if you do this right. Well, I, I've been wanting to talk to you about 401ks and crypto for a long time. So I'm glad we got a chance to. I think that- When what I deal with this every day, every day <laughs> I still get one, at least one hate mail. They, they don't read the product. They don't see what I've done. They don't know the testimonials I get and how much money I've helped people not lose. Now, you know, I think we'll see the gains and in, 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 as the crypto market matures and there's going to be an ETF. Whole Foods just started accepting it as I predicted like a year ago. Um, everything that I predicted was starting to happen. But, and it's a whole separate thing to say why Bitcoin has upside, but uh, just the math alone, I feel good about what I did. I avoided all the, all the potholes on this be otherwise beautiful road. <laughs> okay. Um, should we, uh, yes. should we, should we wrap? Should I stay for the wrap? Let's, you want me to stay, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll just, okay. I'll, I'll close it. So, okay. so, so we could do another, maybe on, maybe on your show, or if you do something for your audience, we could do something about cryptos and I could explain, not in a, in a grandized way, but I could explain what the philosophy is. People can make their own decisions. I always say people should make their own decisions. And I always said, even in my free materials, before you even got to the paid stuff, I, I did say, see, the ads would have led you to a, a free course where I did a complete top to bottom description where I do say you've got to be d d diversified. This is for your little bit more speculative, uh, but here's the potential upside and avoid the scams. But that's all a little bit of your... <laughs> yes, I've been very curious. So thank you for explaining it. I think we disagree on certain things fundamentally, but I'm glad to understand where you're coming from on this. I think, I think the disagreement though is more macro where like you're giving an overall philosophy, which I agree with. And I'm hitting the people who are like me already in trouble. <laughs> so 
you know, I made bad decisions and I had to get out of them. Yeah. And you're hitting people like, okay, let's start making good decisions. I want you, to, you know, positive decisions. And that's a framework for life yeah. and, you know, understand risk awards. Sure. And Bitcoin, maybe it was a little less clear. If you, you're, you're saying not everyone's going to do the work to mitigate risk on angel investments, on entrepreneurship, on Bitcoin, on pot stocks, whatever. But here's a way, even if you don't mitigate the risk, here's a way that history has proven to be good financial decisions. So it's a little, it's a little different, but, but it overlaps a lot. Yeah, I, I think it does. I think it's um, about deciding what your risk tolerance is, is things about knowing what your rich life is, which I really challenge people to think about as we talked about, what's your money dial, and setting in place some systems and unconventional decisions that will get you there. All right, well, Ramit Sethi, uh, your ex greatly expanded edition of I Will Teach You To Be Rich. You know, one thing I wanted to talk about, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to arrange it. Yeah, we'll do back, another one. Is the, uh, you talk about marriage, prenups, yeah. all that kind of stuff. I think that's a really interesting topic. We'll talk about it next time. Thanks so, so much for me for coming on the podcast. You're a good friend, and it's always great to have you on here. Thanks, James. <laughs>